Welcome to the latest episode of The Wharton Current. My name is Nick Van Hollen, and today my co-host Thomas Obermeyer and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Wharton grad Amy Dufour, Managing Director at Prime Impact Fund and General Partner at Azola Ventures. Through the lens of the climate capital stack, we dive into Prime Impact Fund's pioneering investment model, the evolving role of catalytic capital, and investment opportunities with gigaton scale climate impact. We also discuss Amy's journey from Wharton to Prime and keys to success for MBA students looking to attract early stage funding for their own ventures or make a career transition into climate investing. Let's jump right in. Amy, thank you so much for being with us on the Wharton Current today. To start it off, could you give us a brief overview of your background and your journey both to Wharton and since Wharton? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much um, for having me, Nick and Thomas. I always love to support the Wharton community because it gave me so much when I was there as a student. So, you know, the journey has been not that long, <laughs> but there have been lots of uh, twists and turns. Uh, so I actually grew up in the Philadelphia area. Um, so coming to business school at Wharton was a little bit like coming home. I did my undergrad in urban studies and political science in New York and graduated during the financial crisis when there were no jobs at all. So what many people did is we ended up going to grad school. I ended up um, at uh, Oxford in the UK doing a master's in migration studies, which I felt was really uh, meaningful but at the time was less practical because you know for me i was studying these marginalized west african migrants and it was all about how you know we could use civic engagement to help improve their position and you know i didn't really want to be just producing knowledge for knowledge's sake and so you know what did i do after that I did what many people do who were lost as I went into management consulting. So I went into operations focused management consulting for um, a UK consulting firm. And one of the best things it gave me was a project um, in Singapore um, at Barclays Investment Bank. Not, you know, Barclays being, being the best thing, but actually moving to Southeast Asia, a place where, you know, I never thought I would end up. And at that point in time in my career, I really took a look and said, hmm, I kind of started out with this very social justice, environmental justice bent and had gone away from that. And so I was looking for a way to marry the business acumen that I had gained in consulting with my passion for social and environmental impact. Uh, so came across the field of impact investing and transitioned um, from the kind of consulting firm slash Barclays to an impact investing firm called IIX, which is um, also led by uh, a Wharton alum. And so there I was running early stage uh, social venture accelerator programs around Southeast Asia. So I was on the ground um, with entrepreneurs in the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore, uh, really helping them think through their pain points. But I was doing a lot of that from an operational lens and I wanted to be an investor. Uh, applied for a bunch of jobs, but it was hard because everyone saw ops person, um, which is why I decided to go back to school and wanted to focus on a finance school to help close any perceived gaps in my skill set and feel really grateful um, to have gone to Wharton. And so when I was at Wharton, it was all about, you know, creating uh, a narrative that would make me attractive to be an early stage investor kind of in the broader um, impact space. 
along the way, I got really religious about climate change. I figured if we don't solve this, nothing else matters. And so after Warren, I joined Bank of America as a renewables investment banker, um, worked on a bunch of stuff, including the IPO of Sonova. It's a residential solar company. Um, and then after that point in time, when I had got that IPO under my belt, I said, okay, let's see if we can transition into early stage um, venture, focusing on climate investing, and felt really grateful um, to have been exposed to and met um, the prime uh, team, you know, where I joined about two and a half years ago, initially um, as a principal, and then you know, we've raised our, our second fund, which has a new name, which is always super confusing, um, but it's called a, a Zola Venture. So that is my background in a nutshell, probably longer than you had anticipated. No, it's actually really helpful. And you're talking with two recovering management consultants here who are also looking at potentially transitioning into climate investing. So it's, it's really useful to hear your story. And we're really excited to have you on both because of your background and your work at Prime, but also we are trying to start up a series of podcasts that are more focused on climate investing, um, both because it aligns with our interests, it aligns with a lot of our classmates' interests. So I think this is a great way to kick it off. One of the ways that we're hoping to frame this conversation is through the lens of the climate capital stack. There's a great um, newsletter, the Climate Tech VC newsletter that had an edition in October that laid out the different types of capital that are you know, designed to reach companies at different stages and have different benefits and, and applications. So if you could explain a little bit more about what Prime Coalition and Prime Impact Fund is and to the extent you want to talk about Azola and where does that fit within this construct of available types of capital in the climate space? Yeah, it's a great question. And first of all, I love Climate Tech VC. Um, Sophie Purdom um, and Kitsa are doing amazing, amazing work. Uh, so I thought that was actually a really helpful um, framework to understand the different types of capital available within the climate space. So happy to focus on catalytic capital and it'll be helpful to start with the origin story of Prime Coalition and then how that morphed into Prime Impact Fund and you know, speaking a little bit about Azola Ventures uh, because it underscores why we think catalytic capital is so important. So Prime Coalition is a 501c3 um, nonprofit, which was started in 2014 um, by a woman named Sarah Carney. And at the time, there were almost zero venture dollars going into primarily hardware-based climate tech companies. You know, why is that? Hardware is hard. It requires often more capital or longer investing horizon. And Sarah had the thought of, okay, instead of us focusing on why venture isn't stepping up to the plate, there at the time was $600 billion dollars in U.S. family foundations and family offices alone. So why don't we partner with that asset class um, to help drive climate innovation? So for the first four years of the nonprofit's life, we did what we call deal by deal syndication. So we matched kind of early stage climate space with high net worth individuals, family offices, and foundations. And over four years, mobilized $24 million across 10 companies and had a number of learnings, but one of them was that we should raise our own dedicated fund. And so Prime Impact Fund is really the second investment initiative of Prime Coalition. Um, in many ways, it, it acts like a subsidiary of the broader nonprofit. And the innovation in the Prime Impact Fund model is that all of the capital that is coming into the fund from LPs 
is what we call catalytic capital. So it can be in the form of recoverable grants, program-related investments, which are typically used by US foundations, or mission-related investments, which are equity subscriptions. This form of capital is much more structurally patient and flexible. And so we wanna use that to de-risk early stage climate technologies for follow-on investors. So when you think about the color of capital you know, that we have at Prime Impact Fund, you know, there were three criteria to make sure that we were deploying it thoughtfully. So the first is gigaton scale climate impact. There are other funds out there that are focusing on more incremental improvements in the climate space, which we think is totally worthwhile, but we are only focusing on large scale swings. Um, so, you know, our investment criteria is at least half a gigaton cumulatively of greenhouse gas emissions reductions by 2050. It is the same criteria that we had during deal by deal syndication. And it's also the same criteria that we have in Azola Ventures, which is the successor fund to Prime Impact Fund. So that's the first piece. Um, the second piece is a criteria that we call additionality. Because we have this special color of capital, because we have catalytic capital, we really wanna be additional in how we use it. So for us, that means, you know, we could be investing much earlier than others, which is what we often do. We're not afraid of going into university labs. We could be investing in a category that other climate or other general investors, you know, view as undesirable, which ended up being a lot of the kind of remnants of the clean tech, you know, 1.0 bubble, or we're the only deep climate investor around the table, you know, or, you know, the terms that another investor has put down is really unfair for the CEO. You know, what it ultimately means is that we need to be really thoughtful about how we deploy it and we're not chasing hot deals. So if there's a 3x oversubscribed round and you've got, you know, Breakthrough Energy Ventures around the table, which is another climate focused investor and, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, it's just not the best use of our catalytic capital, which is used to de-risk early stage climate technologies. Beyond that, though, I think people often ask, okay, you're using catalytic capital, you're kind of going earlier than others and de-risking, does that mean you're just investing in, you know, crazy moonshots or charity cases? And absolutely not. Our third investment criteria is the ability for a company to be attractive to downstream conventional investors, whether VCs or strategics. So we have a whole mechanism in terms of how we gather the data points on additionality and attractive to downstream investors, but pretty much we don't want our capital to be a bridge to nowhere. So that's really, really important um, criteria for us as well. So Prime Impact Fund, you know, we have um, 16 companies in our portfolio, so we're not making any initial investments anymore. The companies really run the gamut from a lithium extraction startup, which is really critical for the exponential growth in the electric vehicle market to a direct air capture startup. We know that we have to take five to 15 gigatons of carbon out of the air given human consumption and production patterns to an ag tech startup, which is um, focusing on crop loss and food waste. So we're really proud of the kind of diversity of climate technologies in that portfolio. And also part of proud of our investors because, you know, Prime Impact Fund has you know, a larger number of investors than probably normal, normal venture funds. And, you know, that was by design because, you know, the largest um, check in that fund was up to 10 million. The smallest check was, you know, 10K. We really care about democratizing the impact investing space. So you can have large foundations that are there sitting alongside members of the giving pledge with, 
you know, other high net worth individuals. And it's really important to us from a field building perspective that we can demonstrate that you can bring in lots of different types of people into the climate investing space, people that, you know, may not normally be sitting next to each other. And so um, that's a really important feature of that fund. And then maybe the last thing I'll touch on is for Azola, you know, that is the successor fund to Prime Impact Fund. Um, it is the management company of Azola is managing the Prime Impact Fund portfolio of companies because it's the exact same team. It's the exact same investment um, strategy. And, you know, we're taking a lot of the learnings that Prime Coalition as our impact um, partner and nonprofit founder um, has made over the years, as well as what we've learned in Prime Impact Fund. So I'll stop there. That was Get the uh, answer. <laughs> that was uh, very insightful. I have a handful of follow-up questions, both about your investments thesis and how you track the investments you made. But before we get there, maybe about the catalytic uh, capital space as a whole. Is Prime the only fund that is pursuing that avenue in the climate space? And similar question: How easy or difficult is it to talk to potential LPs? Are they generally very receptive of this model or does it take more convincing? Yeah, those are those are good questions. You know, I think for the first part, I mean, one of the things I'm so proud about Prime um, Coalition is it was really a pioneer in the catalytic capital space. You know, we're not the only ones who are who are doing this in the climate space. I mean, there are others, you know, like Virtue Lab, which is based in the Pacific Northwest, um, the MacArthur Foundation which has a catalytic capital consortium, has supported Prime um, in a number of different ways as well as other organizations. But I think what's really important about the Prime model is that we are very open with what we are trying to build. We get contacted all the time of people being like, hey, I wanna be the Prime of uh, healthcare or the Prime of you know, um, you know, ag tech or, or whatever. And for Prime Impact Fund, it's pretty amazing um, and, and unusual is we actually offer our um, fund documents to anyone if they, as long as they sign like the sharing agreement. So we will literally email you our fund documents. So if you want to replicate this model, you can do that. This model of, you know, a, a blind pool of catalytic capital. So we think that there needs to be more collaboration in this space, not competition. I mean, the climate crisis is huge. Like we need all hands on deck. There's no pride of place here. Uh, so that's on that piece. And then kind of your, your second question is that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna take it a step back and be a little bit more broad, which is that we are doing something, you know, new and unique. And that always takes time in terms of educating people because, essentially we're telling you that the, the, the normal way that you think of investing, like there is another way that you can think about things, you know, differently um, and do things differently and deploy your capital differently. And so, you know, we feel honored when we can bring someone along, frankly, on our journey to understand how critical catalytic capital can be. And I think MacArthur Foundation and others in the space are just driving, you know, the promise of it across a number of different impact areas. And if you ask me this question again in maybe two or three years, I might I might have a different answer. Maybe it'll be so ubiquitous that like I don't have to explain it. But um, I think that we seek out uh, partners who understand that we are trying to do something different. 
um, and, and set a new paradigm uh, for the climate space and for climate investing more broadly. Got it. That's helpful. Given how early you see companies to invest in, I assume you take a pretty active and hands-on role in managing or working with them once uh, the investments have gone through. Can you talk a little bit about your interactions with them and what type of financial and non-financial metrics you use to track their progress as they're growing? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so we are early stage investors. So generally we invest in pre-seed, seed and series A rounds. And we are hands-on partners to portfolio companies. So not dictators, but advisors. Uh, so if you look at our portfolio and prime impact fund, you know, we invested in 16 companies for more than half of them. You know, we led or co-led the round. Um, and in all but one, we had an active governance role, either a board director or board observer seat. You know, that's really important to us because, you know, we really are focused on gigaton scale climate impact and, and being an impact first fund. We want to be able to support portfolio companies to achieve large scale climate impact in obviously a financially sustainable way. Um, so, you know, I right now am sitting on, um, you know, I have five different, you know, board roles and, you know, I love all of the portfolio companies that I work with. I mean, I talk to them all the time, literally all the time. <laughs> so uh, I think if you love working with really smart people who are trying to solve incredibly hard problems and we're there to listen and, and provide advice based on, you know, our experience and exposure across different industries, um, I think it's a real privilege to be working with them. You asked also about the metrics. So that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nuanced question because in terms of financial metrics, I mean, we track the same financial metrics that probably a standard, you know, VC tracks. I think actually what's different for us is the non-financial metrics because we are very focused on impact. So there are a couple of different guardrails in terms of how we are assessing impact. So the first is what we call an emissions reduction potential assessment. It's a forward-looking assessment of greenhouse gas emissions reductions by a certain time period. So during the diligence process, if I'm really interested in a company, at some point we engage Prime Coalition, um, our nonprofit and impact partner, to do um, what we call an ERP. And so as, if I love a company, the team is awesome, the tech is incredible, the unit economics look sound, but our consultant um, through Prime Coalition does that assessment and it doesn't project to have at least half a gigaton of greenhouse gas emissions reduction by 2050, we can't move forward with an investment, it's dead in the water. And so that's important because we don't wanna have our investment team on the pulse just pushing stuff forward that doesn't have a large scale climate impact. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is, you know, within 90 days after we make an investment, we set climate impact milestones for each portfolio company. And so there's a framework whereby we have operational milestones that are then translate into um, products or services deployed, which then will hopefully translate into emissions reductions realized. Um, and so we set them every year and revisit them. And those are reported out uh, to our LPs across the operational milestones, which is within the company's control where they're at currently, you know, what the target is and what the status is. So then we are holding ourselves accountable and the company's accountable to our investors. And then they can track, 
you know, we do, um, you know, biannual reporting every six months where these companies are at relative to their climate impact um, metric. So we think that's a really helpful framework for us as investment managers to make sure that we're all, you know, incentivized and aligned towards gigaton scale climate impact. Really cool and fascinating. You mentioned Prime has 16 portfolio companies right now. Could you talk a little bit more about what those companies are, what investments have been made? And then more generally, we'd love to hear a little bit about like broadly opportunities in the climate space uh, that you find compelling and, and maybe also some areas where you're seeing a lot of buzz right now, but you'd be a little bit overhyped. I know yeah. that's a big question. <laughs> feel, free to, feel free to pick the parts that, that you want to start with and we'll go from there. Okay, let me break this up. So um, when I talked about how we invested in a lithium extraction startup, um, that was Lilac Solutions. So, you know, I, I won't go into too, too much detail, but figuring out how to extract lithium in a cost-effective and sustainable way is really critical because lithium is such an important component um, within the value chain and our clean energy transition. We... I'm invested in Lilac um, in late 2018. You know, the CEO, again, an incredible guy. They had, you know, worked super hard to build out the team, secure several partners on board that were, were really important to get that next stage of development. Um, you know, they raised in early 2020 a $20 million oversubscribed uh, Series A round that was co-led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures um, and the engine, which is MIT's Tough Tech Fund. And then about a month and a half ago, so again, a year later after that, uh, they raised $150 million Series B round that was co-led by T. Rowe Price and Lower Carbon Capital, which is Chris Saka's fund. So I like to use Lilac as an example because we were one of the first investors in the company and we deployed catalytic capital and, you know, it's primarily the incredible management team, you know, but also we were able to use our capital to de-risk and help the company achieve additional proof points such that they would be super attractive to conventional investors. And it's an amazing story. And, and they're really kind of a, a blockbuster um, portfolio company. We're super proud of them. You know, I mentioned before some of the other types of companies that we've invested in. One of the companies that I sit on the board of is a company called Noon Energy. It's a long duration energy storage startup. You know, we're going, we believe that maybe not today for some people, but, you know, we are going to need um, batteries that are able to store energy for 100 to 200 hours. And the question is, how can we do that cost effectively with high energy density and reasonable round trip efficiency. I know I'm biased as a board director, but I think they have a really game changing technology. You know, so that's another example. Um, you know, there's another uh, company called Sublime Systems um, led by an incredible woman uh, named Leah Ellis. And they're focusing on low carbon cement production. You know, cement is responsible for like 8% or something of global greenhouse gas emissions. It's insane. So. We don't really see the world in terms of sectors, but climate wedges and our portfolio reflects that. The second part of your question, which I, I don't remember now, so you have to you have to remind me because it was a big question. 
Yeah, I think I managed to fit three questions in one. The second piece was other opportunity areas. And we were trying to juxtapose that with areas that are gaining attention, but maybe um, at this point, at least you feel like are either overhyped or not fully proven out. So I am going to not focus on the overhyped piece because I think we need, we need, we need all capital and all support flowing in, but I will talk about some overlooked sectors because you know, for us, we are using catalytic capital. We're deploying it in a way that's additive, right? We're not trying to just redo the same thing. And so areas that get me really excited, you know, when I think about uh, kind of technologies that are focused on decarbonizing shipping, I mean, that's a huge and hard nut to crack in terms of our um kind of broader deep decarbonization. So I think that's really important. I don't see enough companies that are there. Uh, frontiers of computing, like let's think about all the energy that's expended from, you know, data centers and crypto and like what, what that looks like. I find that that's, you know, another really interesting area to dive deeper into. There are um, other even kind of untapped verticals in certain hot spaces. So when you think about ag tech, a lot of money is flowing downstream towards the end consumer. There's less money flowing midstream or upstream closer to the producer. So I find companies that are focusing on reducing food waste earlier on in the supply chain, whether you know we've invested in a company like that, but I just find that whole space really uh, critical and important. Or if you think about um, carbon measurement and verification, given the robustness and like kind of the all these corporates are, are putting these, you know, pledges down and carbon offsets have been increasing. You know, a lot of the measurement and verification piece has been getting capital, but there's been less capital going into soil carbon measurement and verification. It's just super challenging. So like that's another untapped kind of vertical. So there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. And then maybe the last piece I'll say is I really love blue tech. So like anything ocean related, I feel like people are not trying to touch stuff in the ocean because it's like a huge unknown. Your pilot's going to get messed up. Who knows if the costs are going to work, X, Y, and Z. So when I see kind of companies or, you know, technology solutions that are kind of within the blue tech space, I also generally get more excited because I know that they're challenging and our catalytic capital can be helpful um, in de-risking those types of, of technologies for follow-on investors. You mentioned that uh, kind of an aside that we need all capital. Um, and I'd like to push you on that a little bit. Um, we're seeing more and more large scale funds being announced. We're seeing a lot more interest than ever before in the climate tech and sustainability space. Um, don't even have to talk about SPACs and all of that, but two part question. One, do you think climate tech is in a bit of a bubble or overhyped as a, as a space right now? And two, does the additional capital make your job more difficult? Or do you think because the capital is focusing more on a little bit later stage companies, do you still have a niche or a unique role where you can partner with very early stage companies? So do I think we're in another climate tech bubble right now? Yeah, there's a lot of money flowing into climate. Um, I at least am, I'm, I'm very open and excited when other generalist funds have decided to 
create kind of a swivel or of their portfolio allocation towards climate or have raised their own climate funds. I think, again, we, this is a huge problem and we need, it, it requires so much capital because especially hardware, deep tech climate companies are just much more capital intensive. You know, I think where I worry about things is if it becomes a situation whereby, you know, investors that don't have the expertise in climate are just trying to apply a typical software model for deep tech climate companies, which doesn't work, which I think will then end up, you know, creating ripple effects and aftershocks that are going to probably ruin the space. That said, a lot of the kind of generalist funds that are out there, kind of new funds, have usually been partnering, frankly, with other deep tech investors or climate investors in their rounds, which I feel like is really thoughtful and smart. And it just, it, it underscores when you're building an investment syndicate, you really want to have complementary partners and skill sets around the table. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, you know, that trend's going to continue and we won't be in a climate tech bubble. Um, the, the second part of your question, which I feel like it was on the tip of my tongue, and as per usual, I'm trying to recall what you said, Thomas, what was it? It was if the additional capital is making your job ah, more difficult. Yeah. yeah. So we, we get that question often. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't make our job more difficult necessarily, because for us, you know, our second investment criteria, which is additionality, is in some ways, you know, in a, it's a moving target. Because areas that are overlooked in the climate space are not stagnant. They're not going to always stay the same. So, for example, direct air capture a couple of years ago, when we invested in our direct air capture company called Verdox, kind of like un unheard of. Now we're getting pitched by DAT companies like every other week. And some large investment funds have made investments in, you know, direct air capture companies. So maybe in a couple of years, it's not really going to meet our additionality criteria and we'll need to focus on, on something else. I think it's also probably going to push us to make investments in earlier companies. Um, so probably proto companies, you know, where we have to take a more active role in supporting a company through, or, a, you know, a promising, you know, potential founder or technologist or whatever through company formation. Um, I think what will end up happening is that there are always certain areas that people more, you know, investors more broadly are, you know, interested in not touching, <laughs> you know, there's not actually a lot of money, you know, focusing on decarbonizing iron and steel, for example, like it's hard, <laughs> it's really hard. Um, or, you know, industrial process heat, that's not only hard, it's like unsexy, it's not like, you know, transportation or buildings or like electric cars. So I think there's always going to be an area for us to play. And if we need to go earlier, which we're seeing, we'll, we'll just go earlier. And it goes back to your earlier question about, how we like to work with companies. It's it's why we try and be hands-on partners um, because we're not afraid of getting into the kind of nitty gritty stuff when it's really early and not everything's kind of fully formed or fully baked or fully thought out. It's really interesting. I was actually thinking earlier when we were talking about patient capital, how the role of funds like Prime and Azola change over time. I was actually thinking of it through the context of like coming out of... Um, coming out of COP and a lot of the messaging we've seen more recently where it shifted, uh, I think it shifted the urgency forward a little bit more. And, and um, I've read a bunch of things that kind of talk about 
how there are all these net zero commitments for 2050, which patient capital can get, you know, us can we can have big step changes by 2050, but there's this huge gap between now and 2030. And obviously, if you lock in emissions in the short run, um, you create issues and you make those net zero uh, targets unobtainable. So I was more thinking of like, it's interesting how as we creep towards some of the dates that the patient capital is meant to kind of get us there by how also, you know, the role of, of funds like Prime um, and other ones will change. But it's interesting to hear the, the take you just had, which is also the way that capital is flowing into the space right now. It makes the need for a Prime who's looking for those pockets also change and maybe shifting that role. So it's really interesting. It'll be cool to see how that evolves over the next few years and next few funds and, um, and copycats and all that. Hopefully there's not a climate tech bubble. At the same time as MBA students looking for a job, it is nice to see a lot of money being, you know, flowing into the space and a lot of companies having uh, big fundraising rounds. And so our last segment it would be great to hear what type of advice you have for MBA students from two perspectives. The first is advice you have for entrepreneurs. So students who, who might be in business school right now, who are thinking about starting their own company, what types of things should those aspiring entrepreneurs be thinking about if they want to attract early stage capital from a prime or from, from one of your other partners? Yes, it's never been a better time to start a climate tech company. So I would encourage everyone to do it because you're right, there's a lot of money flowing into this space. I would say in terms of advice is being really clear and intentional about the problem that you are solving in the climate space because now there's so many, you know, people that are coming up with companies, sometimes they're solving problems that like aren't real problems or the solution that's been proposed is not the most effective or appropriate one for the problem. So really think through that and be able to articulate it to investors. And because there are more investors that are focusing on the climate space, people are smarter, you know? So a couple of years ago, you know, you could maybe pitch a half-baked idea. I don't think you can do that as well as well now, because if a generalist fund doesn't have the expertise, like I said before, there's a lot of collaboration with other funds who are deeper climate-focused investors. This is just something pretty basic, but, you know, I always find like when people aren't thoughtful or like customize their kind of pitch or presentation to investors. So if you pitch us at Prime and you don't mention a word about greenhouse gas emissions and like how you're reducing that and everywhere plastered when you see us on the internet is about how we focus on, you know, gigaton scale climate impact, you haven't like done your basic homework. Um, you know, so I think that there's, and, and it used to happen quite a lot. Like I was kind of like, what are, are, are y'all doing the basic work that you're supposed to be doing? So, you know, I would, I would think through that. I would also think through too, you know, for climate tech entrepreneurs who are looking for capital for their businesses is not all capital is created equal. First of all, like you're in, working with investors is like working, it's like a marriage. So don't just be so desperate to get money that you don't look at the other person on the side of the table and think like, do I want to be married to them? Uh, but also that there are probably different types of capital that could be more appropriate for your business. So maybe you should be focusing on grant funding. Maybe you should be focusing on catalytic capital. Maybe you should be focusing on early stage, maybe traditional venture. Maybe you should be focusing on... Um, I guess this is not less early stage, but you know more kind of 
project finance, which I think is actually going to be a huge gap in, in the, the climate space in terms of, of funding. So I would just be really creative because all this new capital in the space means that people are thinking about new ways and innovative ways to structure and deploy things. Maybe it's debt. I mean, I don't know. So I, I would just be very cognizant of that. Not everything needs to be a traditional early stage venture approach. That might not be the right type of capital for your business. Um, and then I, you didn't ask this, but I can imagine what it, it's where you're going, which is that's kind of on the entrepreneur side that what happens if somebody wants to be a climate investor? Can I? Oh yeah. All right. I feel, like I, asked the <laughs> I feel like I asked the same question. Thomas too. Is <laughs> so, well, I mean, first of all, I think if you want to work in climate tech more broadly, it's a really good time because they're there are different prescribed roles. Like you could be an investor, you could be focusing in operations, like supporting companies, um, you know, or being an operator, you could be working on impact measurement and management, like data analytics. There's, there's so many new roles that are coming up in the climate tech space. I think for being a climate investor, this is by no means the only path to get there. I feel like if anything, at least for, from my background, you don't need to have a linear path. And it's really about being able to tell a coherent narrative as to why all of the different skill sets that you've gained, even if they seem disparate, are really critical um, to be a climate investor. But I've generally seen people come in through probably two different pathways, again, which doesn't mean that there aren't other ones. I think the first is demonstrating that you have some sort of um, investing background. Um, and I, I, I you know, people can't see me, but I have like air quotes around it because like investing could mean many different things to different people. Um, sometimes people look at investment bankers, which investment banking is not really investing. You're an intermediary. Maybe you've already had like private equity or venture experience, or you've, um, you know, worked at an accelerator, incubator, Some something that demonstrates that you have investing experience can be really helpful. So you know, especially a lot of the new funds that have come up, I would say are, are probably early stage funds, but maybe they're doing multi-stage or kind of more mature funds. Like they want people that they don't have to train and that can come in and like understand the investing, you know, mindset and the skill set and can, you know, work on, you know, investment transactions quite quickly, which is why I think honing and like kind of leaning deep into like an investing whatever that looks like background is helpful. The other way I've seen is having some sort of sector expertise. So being able to say, Hey, I am, I know, I know all things about energy storage, or I know all things about, um, you know, uh, kind of decarbonizing buildings, or I know all things about um, decarbonizing heavy, heavy industry. I feel like people are also looking for, individuals that have some sort of sector expertise. So when you are evaluating a climate company that it's like, hey, Nick, Nick is the guy that knows everything about kind of, you know, food waste, you know, ag tech startups. Okay, like all the different types of technologies, X, Y, and Z. And the way that you do that look can look very different. Sometimes it can look like you've been working in an organization whereby your role really focused on that. So that you know, two of the associates that are on our team, I mean, they have PhDs in like applied physics and chemistry and worked in areas which were not kind of 
you know, not a typical like investing background, but we're able to demonstrate some sort of sector expertise. Maybe it's classes you've taken or extracurriculars you've done. Um, but I think that's really important because usually someone's saying, all right, I either don't have to train them because they know how to be an investor and we're just going to teach them the subject matter material, or I'm going to teach them to be an investor, but they're going to be able to provide a lot of insights because they have the sector expertise that I don't. So I've, I've generally seen those, those two pathways, but again, I feel like you can sell anyone on anything as long as, you know, you're, <laughs> as long as you're thoughtful about it and authentic. Well, awesome. Uh, Amy, one last question before we close, because we love having Wharton alumni on. Um, what's your favorite Wharton memory? Oh, my favorite Wharton memory. Um, so many. Maybe this will be something for people, people to look forward to. I had a lot of fun at Beach Week. I don't know if they're still doing that. Um, okay, but I had a lot of fun at Beach Week. It was a great experience and a really nice way to, to round out my, my time at Wharton. Oh, actually, also, I'll have two. I have three. <laughs> okay, so Beach Week, I did a trek um, to, to Patagonia, which was incredible. Um, so a lot of those Wharton treks and those things are real. Um, and then um, I would say I also did our semester in San Francisco program. And that was also a really wonderful experience. I mean, really cherish your time at Wharton because you are going to run into these people over and over and over again in so many different, you know, facets of life, whether professional or personal. And I just feel really grateful for the friends um, and like mentors that, that I've made throughout my time there. So yeah, can't say, say enough good things about Wharton. I think we feel the same way. Thank you so, so much for your time. This was wonderful. Nick and I learned a lot and hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you both for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Amy as much as we did. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more information on upcoming episodes and to stay up to date on the Wharton Current. Thank <laughs> you.